You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. You are listening to Rudolf Steiner Audio. This is a reading of a collected work by Rudolf Steiner, number 218, entitled Spirit as Sculptor of the Human Organism, translated by Matthew Barton. This is Lecture 11, given in London on the 18th of November, 1922, and it is the second of three semi-public lectures. Opposition to what I call anthroposophic science of the spirit, arises from two main quarters. I touched on one of these yesterday, the scientific objection. Scientists consider that supersensible knowledge of the kind I presented yesterday is beyond the reach of human cognition, and from this quarter, therefore, anthroposophy is seen as an impossible venture. Today we will be more concerned with the other form of opposition, issuing from those who feel that anthroposophy deprives them and many of those who profess the same faith of their relationship to the Christ. Such people are mostly extremely pious Christians in their own way and their opposition is rooted in this very devoutness of soul. Above all, They believe that our human relationship to Christ should be found through a simple, naive piety of heart and soul. It seems to them that all efforts to speak of Christ, based on real inquiry, will only be confusing for a simple, naive piety, and they would prefer that the search for Christ through the simple human heart should not be disturbed in anyone by efforts to understand Christ through powers of human inquiry. The feelings that arise in these people should no doubt be respected, and yet they are in serious error as far as anthroposophy is concerned. If they were to acknowledge the truth, they would discover that the path they seek to assure knowledge of Christ is in fact smoothed by anthroposophy they would discover that the simple piety of their heart, their yearnings for Christ, are greatly strengthened by everything that anthroposophy has to say about the Christ. I would like to clarify this from various perspectives, the first of which concerns what people have felt to be their religious life, their religious consciousness, at various stages of humanity's evolution on earth. Let us trace this back a little into olden times, and you will see as I continue that this historical view is not irrelevant to our theme, but can in fact clear up various modern misunderstandings. However, we cannot discover anything about these very ancient periods of humanity's evolution through external historical documents, but only by means of the spiritual science I described to you yesterday. We can only study them inwardly by using the kind of perception which I yesterday showed to be necessary for understanding the human being's supersensible nature, 
and our supersensible experiences of destiny. Looking back in this way into ancient eras, we find that people in those days attended to what was told them by pupils in the so-called mysteries. There are scarcely any extant historical records of these ancient mysteries, since what does exist is of so late a date that it really gives no insight into them. These mysteries were humanity's cultural and spiritual centers, where art, religion, and science were still united. And the great teachers of these mysteries, the gurus, enjoyed almost divine veneration. The rest of humanity, to satisfy the dictates of their piety, attended to what the pupils of such mysteries told them, absorbing insights into the world, the world order, that the pupils of mystery teachers had learned in their devotional, reverent life. To illumine the nature of piety in the modern age, in particular devotion to Christ, I'd like to briefly outline the nature of the relationship between a pupil and his guru, a teacher in the mysteries, in those ancient times. The first thing to realize is that these teachers were revered as people whose inner life was filled with divine power. When such teachers spoke to their pupils in the inspired words of the mysteries and rituals, the pupils believed that divine cosmic powers were speaking from their mouths, that they were not mere human beings anymore. This was not just metaphorical, but a real sense possessed by ancient mystery pupils. You can imagine, therefore, how deep were the feelings of reverence such pupils had for their teachers, knowing that the divine was speaking to them from their teacher rather than just another human being, that what they considered divine was speaking through the teacher. It seems paradoxical to us today, but is especially characteristic of the outlook which pupils in the ancient mysteries had that they thought divine spiritual beings themselves had descended to the earth in still older eras when the earth had first begun, had descended naturally in a spiritual form. And these divine spiritual beings who did not assume a human physical body, but who nevertheless were able to communicate spiritual knowledge to the original gurus, the first mystery teachers, gave the first instructions as to what humankind should be taught to bring it into a right connection with the world of spirit. It was thought, therefore, that what the gods had once conveyed to humankind had been passed on from generation to generation, coming down to the pupils of each era. You will say that this leads to an explanation of the origin of human wisdom in supersensible worlds. But here we touch on an area where even today still, if, for example, we think only of explanations of language, people are very unclear about origins. There are people who think, of course, that human speech evolved from animal calls, as Darwin proposes. But there are also those, and especially until quite recently this was so, who assign a divine origin to language. 
Now, I, I do not wish to dwell on this theme at present, or on what really underlies the development of language, for this is beyond our scope today. It is enough for us to know that in their pious feelings, the pupils of the gurus believed that what their teachers taught them had once upon a time been given to humanity by the gods themselves. And what was the goal of such pupilship? The pupil-teacher relationship involved initially an infinitely strong feeling of reverence for and devotion to the guru. The purpose of this complete adherence to a teacher was to unite the pupil with worlds of spirit. He was meant, we can say, to regard his pupil as the sole stream through which the divine could reach him. A pupil felt that he owed to his teacher everything within him, all that developed in his soul. And his teacher gave him instructions, first and foremost, about how to cultivate his thoughts. He was to guide his thoughts in a way that enabled him to learn to think, not by focusing on the sensory world, but by turning all his thoughts, his whole sensibility, to the supersensible world through the power which the guru or teacher planted in his soul in a form of allowable suggestion. When we think, our thoughts usually come up against outward things perceived through the senses. We think, in quotes, table. That is, our thinking confronts the table, comes up against it. Or we think tree, and this means, likewise, that our thinking comes up against and is stopped short by the tree. By contrast, the influence of the guru aimed to make thoughts transparent, so that the pupil saw nothing that is in the world, but instead, through thinking vision, could look into worlds, supersensible worlds, which I described to you yesterday by drawing on modern initiation science. The pupil was also to experience these supersensible worlds. And to do so, instructions were given him that related to language, to speech. When we speak in ordinary life, we share thoughts with another person, either thoughts we ourselves have or ones we have received from somewhere else. Excuse me, from elsewhere. In a nutshell, what flows into our language lives on the physical earth. Now, the guru gave his pupil mantric verses, which, uttered in a half-declamatory, half-spoken way, were intended not only to enable the pupil to hear the meaning of the living words in his speech, but also to experience in each flowing phrase the stream of cosmic divinity as well. Each phrase or sentence was to be spoken in a way that rendered its human content meaningless, yet allowed the divine reality, living in the world and in the human being, to flow or stream within it. Looking through the thoughts that thus became transparent to him, the pupil was to perceive the divine. Rather than the meaning of these mantric verses, the pupil, as he recited them, was to be led into the rites of worship through the divine power streaming through them. Through what lay in these rites he was to direct his will and his whole human personality toward the divine, 
Many of the rites and rituals were connected with this. You can still see this today in the cross-legged Buddha posture, where the human limbs are placed in a position that does not accord or engage with earthly actions. Through the very posture or physical stance that is adopted, the position of one's limbs, one is lifted right away from earthly conditions and thereby guided to the divine, as accompaniment also to actions accomplished in one's awareness, in the mind or spirit. What was all this meant to achieve? Well, through this threefold mindfulness of the self, the pupil's sensibility, his soul, sought to raise to the divine the evil or sinful lapses from godliness which people on the earth become embroiled in, and to pour this upward into the supersensible worlds that I described to you yesterday. Yesterday I showed that through modern initiation science also, it is possible to rise into the worlds in which we live as soul spiritual beings before we begin our earthly lives, and from which we descend in order to connect with the body given us by our mother and father. We return to these worlds when we have passed back again through the portal of death, there preparing another life, as I said. The aim of these divine teachers in the ancient mysteries was not only to direct the gaze and thoughts of the pupil up into supersensible worlds, but to engender in him also a power of prayerful thinking, a power of mantric recitation in which the divine could flow, a power of devotion to acts of worship, a great power that could guide what was sinful in nature up into supersensible worlds. And these pupils would then in turn teach others to embrace the outlook in which they had been inculcated in these mysteries. This was the cultural content of the civilization of those ancient times. But what was the precondition for engaging in such a practice? It was based on the fact that human beings live here on earth in a world which, unlike the divine, does not fully encompass their being. This is how the ancient pupil of the guru regarded it. And this was also what the Guru taught. This world, he said, in which you live between birth and death, encompasses other realms of nature, which in a certain way are one with it, but it does not encompass our deeper human nature. What a person could accomplish between birth and death, his deeds and experiences, leaving aside the fact that this life in many respects was seen as very sinful in those times, was not thought to include the full scope of his human nature. And in those ancient times all pupils of a guru knew clearly at certain moments of their lives that they had lived in a supersensible world before they were born and would live in this world again after death. They knew this through an ancient primitive clairvoyance that they did not need to develop but possessed as a natural endowment a dreamlike clairvoyance, common in those ancient times. And so they believe themselves not to be fully human if they were only connected with what exists here on the physical earth, 
and only accomplished what is possible here. They felt that they needed to direct their powers up into worlds of spirit. Their full being was not here on earth, but above. That was the idea at the root of those ancient mysteries, that what cannot be properly accomplished here on earth could be raised in the rites and rituals accomplished in accord with clairvoyant thoughts, into the stream of mantras with their divine intonations and led from earthly to super-earthly conditions. Only there, in supersensible worlds, they believed, could human deeds be corrected since these supersensible worlds encompass the whole human being. This is what the ancient gurus taught their pupils in a very factual, tangible way. When a person passes through the portal of death, he knows that what he has been able to accomplish on earth is not sufficient for his whole being, and that as he passes through the world of spirit he must balance and redress what can be done badly on earth, can only be done imperfectly and unwisely. And now amongst all the knowledge of supersensible worlds one gains by the means described yesterday, one can also perceive how actions that remain imperfect on the earth can be completed and made perfect in the supersensible world. But in those ancient times things were different, and as we will see in a moment, must become different again today. In those ancient times pupils learned from their teachers that when someone passes through the portal of death and enters the supersensible world, at a certain period he meets a lofty spiritual being whose outward manifestation is the sun and its light. The ancient mysteries called this being the high divine being of the sun. If we look at someone on earth, we say that his soul manifests in his facial expressions, his physiognomy. Similarly, people in ancient times regarded the sun's movements and solar phenomena as the physiognomy, the outward expressions of the high sun being. In the sun's outward radiance and its predominance in the heavens, they saw the gestures of this solar being, whom they could not see directly while on earth, but whom they encountered when they passed through the gate of death. The same being helped to perfect what remained imperfect in earthly conditions. The ancient gurus or teachers spoke to their pupils as follows, Turn the piety of your hearts, your devotion, toward the lofty being of the sun, so that you may find this being, and so that after death this being whom you will encounter in worlds of spirit, whom you cannot meet here on earth, will help you to balance and redress your imperfections, will help you to pass through the world of spirit in the right way. But, as the mystery of Golgotha approached, ancient mystery wisdom was in decline. There was little left of it except fading traditions. There were still initiates who adhered to the Divine Father with the same devotion and piety, the Father God who had once sent His divine messengers to earth to teach the original gurus. And these initiates knew still that the teachings given to mystery pupils in ancient times 
had granted them great consolation and comfort, the knowledge that after death they would meet the lofty sun-being who helps transform all earthly imperfection into perfection, relieving them of the burdensome sense of lapsing from the divine spiritual world order. But this lofty sun-being had to descend to earth and take on the garb of humanity in Jesus of Nazareth. And since the death of Jesus Christ at Golgotha is no longer to be sought in supersensible worlds, but instead amongst humankind. This was the message of initiates around the time of the mystery of Golgotha and through to the third century A.D. To those who were willing to listen to them, these initiates said that the healing being they had longed for had been present for ancient humanity, but through a divine deed had descended to the earth, appearing in human form, and since then had been living supersensibly within humanity's further evolution. Whereas ancient pupils had to enter the mysteries and in their acts of worship, their rites, learn to look up to supersensible worlds, people of the new era must now gain a direct relationship with the Christ being on the earth itself. For he had descended and become a human being like other human beings. That was the mood disseminated by contemporaries at the time of the mystery of Golgotha and by many initiates in the first three centuries of the Christian era. Historical records say little about this. Basically all the texts that promulgated this have been destroyed. But by the means I described yesterday, one can develop insights that show this mood prevailing in Christianity in the first three centuries amongst those who were still willing to hearken to the remaining initiates. Until this Christ mood was lost and must today be renewed. When this part of the lecture has been translated, I will begin the second part. And so, in the relationship which pupils developed with their teacher, this reverent devotional relationship, they gradually learned to look up to the divine. And in the teacher himself, the guru, they saw a mediator of the divine, someone who enabled the divine to stream down to the earth, and in turn guided up into the world of spirit the piety which pupils wished to direct there. A wealth of such feelings existed and by inheritance through generations took root in the human sensibility, the human soul. Those who became the first Christian teachers, whose powers of inwardness and reverence few have any inkling of today, guided the devotion of those who hearkened to them, not to gurus any longer in the old sense, but to the Christ, who descended from worlds of spirit and had assumed humanity in the body of Jesus of Nazareth. This sum of feelings was perpetuated through centuries and was directed toward the figure whom external Christian history tells passed through the mystery of Golgotha, passed through the death, through death for the sake of humankind, so that henceforward humanity could find him on the earth. Modern initiation science, which I spoke to you about yesterday, 
now approaches this Christ mystery once again, seeking to grasp the secret of Golgotha. Why is this necessary? Although a quality of piety and religiosity survived into the Middle Ages, as if perpetuating that current of reverential devotion which pupils had once felt for the ancient gurus, the old dreamlike clairvoyance increasingly faded as a human endowment. Anthroposophic spiritual science enables us to ascertain, without recourse to historical documents, that in ancient times people were able to immerse themselves in a kind of dreamlike clairvoyance, and by this means they perceived the world from which they themselves had descended to earthly existence. But humanity slowly lost this knowledge of the eternal in the human soul. Under its sway, people could never have attained a sense of human freedom, which is part and parcel of our full humanity, and had to enter humankind. This sense of freedom entered human beings during the Middle Ages, at the same time as that old form of consciousness faded away, since it could never have been intrinsically free. You see, when a person gazed upon the nature of the human being as soul among spiritual beings in pre-earthly existence, he felt himself to be dependent. He felt unfree. One can say that a time arrived when the old clairvoyance grew dim, and in this twilight state, in respect of the world of spirit, humanity developed its sense of freedom, which reached a certain culmination in our modern civilization. But this also meant that humankind could no longer see into those supersensible worlds from which Christ descended into Jesus of Nazareth. And therefore, the reverence practiced in Christianity became a more traditional one, with people relying on historical tradition and drawing on what remained in them of ancient guru veneration, passed down through heredity. It was still possible for a while to direct toward the divine all human reverence which people had formerly acquired in their relationship with it. But in this twilight consciousness, a knowledge of the natural world, such as had been unknown in ancient times, increasingly developed and people increasingly lost any inkling that human inquiry can discover a world of spirit. But the kind of knowledge I described to you yesterday is a real continuation of our knowledge of nature. All that can approach us as we practice meditation and concentration and thus gain insight into the world of spirit can develop most strongly when we do not accept what science tells us about the surrounding world as the whole truth, but instead wrestle inwardly with it. When we absorb scientific thoughts in their precision and accuracy, but then seek to unite them with our inmost human nature. What arises in consequence is initially undefined, a certain mood or condition of soul. If, in this mood, we practice meditation, concentration in the realm both of thought and will, the soul is guided upward 
as I described yesterday, into supersensible worlds. And by this means we acquire the capacity to understand the nature of the supersensible. We learn to look away from the earth, as science describes it, into a supersensible world, which, however, belongs to the earth and which must be seen as intrinsic to the earth in particular, if we wish to understand the human being. And then in the inmost depths of someone struggling for anthroposophic insight arise questions of the most far-reaching importance. And in seeking answers to these questions, he will find that they lead him in turn to an understanding of the mystery of Golgotha. Having raised our consciousness away from the earth, thus learning to see the realm of spirit, having succeeded in perceiving outside the human body and even, as I described yesterday, in acting through ideal magic, we have learned to introduce our cognition and will into a world of spirit in this body-free condition. Equipped with this inner understanding of the world of spirit, if we look once more toward Christ, to the earthly event, we then see as the mystery of Golgotha. We do not, as much theology does, stop with the human being Jesus of Nazareth. We no longer have a merely materialistic understanding of what happened at the mystery of Golgotha. Instead, since we have acquired the capacity for spiritual perception, we perceive how the human being, Jesus of Nazareth, was permeated with the Christ. With our capacity to see the Spirit, we also succeed in seeing this divine spiritual nature in the Christ once more. Our modern theosophy, which can regain a direct knowledge of the divine spiritual realm, draws on this knowledge to look upon Jesus of Nazareth and perceive in him, in turn, the Christ who can only be perceived as a spiritual being. Thus the knowledge we develop of the super-earthly realm allows us to approach the Christ, perceiving in the Christ himself a super-earthly reality, the divine within the God who became man. Modern anthroposophy leads us back to the Christ through a full grasp of the world of spirit doing so especially if we have properly prepared ourselves through anthroposophy. To render this fully comprehensible, I'd like to show how, as modern human beings, we can approach the world of spirit in either a mistaken or a correct way. Today, you see, there are modern successors to those over whom the influence of the ancient mysteries once held sway in a dull, twilight consciousness that could look into certain states of pre-birth existence. In this dull awareness they sought, through their rites and rituals, to let the Spirit flow toward the Divine. These ancient, pious people have successors today in those who seek a connection with the world of Spirit in a very dubious way. In ancient times, the outward soul life of these pious people remained in the soul realm, and they directed their soul toward supersensible worlds. 
This pious mood was perpetuated among Christians as Christian reverence, as I described at the beginning of my lecture. Such people today wish to retain this naive piety. It is naive nowadays because we no longer perceive supersensible existence through our natural consciousness. And this naive piety no longer leads us upward, as it did the ancient pupils of the Guru, to supersensible worlds, but instead remains here on earth in the physical body. That is the characteristic quality of this naive piety, that it remains with feelings and sentiments, feelings the soul has when immersed in itself, in its own human nature. When someone dwells in and upon their own human nature, they can in fact gain knowledge that the physical body is not just flesh and blood, but also contains spirit. This spirit, which pious people once sought to guide toward the divine, is what the misguided modern successors of ancient mystery pupils today seek to enact in a mediumistic kind of way. What is a medium? Someone who allows the spirit to speak or write or announce itself in some other way through the physical body. It is true that the human body is not merely physical, that spirit can speak from it, but this is a mechanical spirit of a lower order. And we can see this in the fact that mediums speak when their consciousness, which is what usually produces writing and speech, is dimmed as it once was in the mystery pupils of ancient times. Such mediums not only wish to experience the spirit directly in and through their body, but also try to manifest it there. And this does happen. Something spiritual that lives in the body does speak when the medium speaks or writes. The characteristic thing about such mediums is, as you may perhaps know, that they become loquacious, write great quantities. But a great deal that must seem dubious for ordinary logic is mingled with what the Spirit announces through their body. And as such they demonstrate that we ought not to reach back to this old form of connection with the divine spiritual realm, but must instead seek it by other means. It is this other means that is sought by anthroposophic spiritual science, and perhaps it is legitimate for me to speak about this for a particular reason. This other way of approaching the world of spirit, at the same time giving due credence to scientific findings and discoveries, and accepting them as the great achievements of modern civilization, is one that finds it extraordinarily difficult as it seeks to approach spiritual worlds, to move the organs of speech, even to entertain the resulting thoughts, let alone to resort to recording them in mediumistic writing. When the spirit within us, of which I spoke yesterday, takes hold of us in meditation and concentration, we would like best to fall silent altogether. Whereas a medium grows loquacious and allows a spirit to speak from him through the speech organs, a conscientious, scientifically educated person in whom the spirit develops supersensible knowledge, as I described yesterday, 
would like best to say nothing, not to speak of that delicate experience announcing itself in the soul. One even feels like forbidding oneself from thinking, since one's thinking has been learned in relation to earthly, physical things. One would prefer not to let thoughts run on, not to flow into one's soul, because one feels a certain inner anxiety that one might half-consciously apply to the spiritual realm thoughts, excuse me, to the spiritual realm, thoughts trained through observation of outward, physical, sensory things. If one applies such thoughts to the inner state of soul I described yesterday, one gets the sense not only that the spirit will take flight, but also that one is acting profanely, that spiritual reality will be distorted. Least of all does one wish to resort to writing, for one knows that in those ancient times, when divine worship was enacted in rituals and actions, writing was never involved. Writing is something that is only developed in humanity along with the sensory, physical orientation of the intellect and reason. One senses writing to be something one wishes to push as far away from oneself as possible when knowledge of the Divine Spirit takes hold of one. As this capacity to perceive the Divine Spirit, the supersensible world, grows in one and takes root, one first becomes inwardly dumb and silent in one's thoughts, and even more so in relation to speech or writing about the divine. As I said, I feel it is legitimate for me to speak of these experiences, since they are, in fact, my own. They are ones I had when I myself pursued a path of development that took me from science to a grasp of worlds of spirit, to perception of spiritual worlds, through to a vision of the mystery of Golgotha gained by perception of these worlds of spirit. I'm going to read that again. As I said, I feel it is legitimate for me to speak of these experiences, since they are in fact my own. They are the ones I had when I myself pursued a path of development that took me from science to a grasp of worlds of spirit, to perception of spiritual worlds, through to a vision of the mystery of Golgotha gained by perception of these worlds of spirit. But you will also understand some of the difficulties faced by a person who approaches the mystery of Golgotha through this modern anthroposophic science of the spirit. The mystery of Golgotha must be grasped in its whole majesty and grandeur, as this is revealed in humanity's history. We have to learn to look upon the historical fact that God passed through death at Golgotha within the human being, Jesus of Nazareth. We have to look upon this greatest of all historical events in an entirely sense-free picture. And yet, in the way I have done this, it is extraordinarily difficult to wrestle one's way through to a sense-free grasp of this reality in thoughts, then to present then to present it in words, perhaps also in writing. But by doing this, one acquires inner reverence, inner awe, 
before the great mystery that took place at Golgotha. Something pours through the soul of someone who has fallen silent in thoughts and words as I described, who wishes to stay very still when the Divine Spirit draws him to the mystery of Golgotha. The deepest, most reverent feeling pours through the soul of such a person, so that he refrains from drawing any closer to this experience. And thus we gain not only knowledge on the anthroposophic path, knowledge comes first through looking up to supersensible worlds, but this pours into feeling, into awe and reverence, something that takes root in the human soul far more deeply even than the feelings an ancient pupil had for his guru. This feeling first develops in the profoundest need to encompass the experience of Christ Jesus at Golgotha. Through an inner metamorphosis, what is initially supersensible vision is entirely transformed into feeling. And this feeling seeks the God become man at Golgotha and can find him because it has learned to perceive the Spirit. It does not speak of the human being, Jesus of Nazareth, but learns to recognize that Christ can truly be perceived in him within earthly reality as a divine spiritual being. And so there flows from anthroposophic spiritual science a knowledge of the spiritual Christ, and at the same time a true reverence flows toward the divine by virtue of what can live in knowledge of the supersensible. How this can lead to a fruitful deepening of Christianity is something I will speak of in the short third part of the lecture after the second part has been translated. Someone who, in the way described, would best like to fall silent in thoughts and words when the power of supersensible perception takes hold of him, who would prefer to refrain from using his organism to express what lives in him, experiences a transition point when he decides that he will, after all, give outward expression to these things. And then he finds something that justifies him in speaking of the spiritual nature of Christ Jesus. At this transition, with the decision to think about the Spirit in thoughts, to speak and write of it, you find that in all speaking and thinking about this spiritual reality, you feel yourself raised out of the physical body. In fact, you cannot then think or speak, since thinking belongs to the physical body, and the physical body is required for speech. And now you feel, in a certain way, alienated from your physical body. Whereas a medium feels himself fully present in his physical body, even suppressing consciousness and living entirely in the physical body to let the spirit speak from it, the person who perceives supersensibly raises himself out of his physical body through a refined, a heightened awareness. Through everything he has experienced as a world of spirit, the physical world becomes something that is extremely difficult for him to grasp hold of. He finds no language, no naive activity of thinking. He cannot find his arms or his whole physical body. 
you gradually have to rediscover this physical world, your thoughts and power of speech, to convey what you experience in the supersensible world. And this makes you feel as if you had a master life, you had to master life a second time, all over again, like passing through a self-created birth. But this also teaches you about the depths of the human entelechy. For in taking hold of this being of yours for a second time, in order to make it into an instrument for thinking about the spiritual, supersensible realm, and to express this, you come to know it. In coming to know it supersensibly, in penetrating your organism with supersensible knowledge of the kind I described to you yesterday and today, you will also find the Christ there who passed through the mystery of Golgotha. You experience the Christ, not only the Christ who once descended to earth and passed through death, but the Christ who passed through death in order to pour himself out again, henceforth, into humanity, the whole of humanity. This is what you experience as you encompass your body once again more fully and consistently through supersensible knowledge. Someone acquiring knowledge of Christ in this way is then able to clothe this knowledge in words that convey a true message of Christ. He has this knowledge that Christ died on Golgotha and passing through death poured himself into human powers of birth, living since then within human nature. And human beings can find him when they enter deeply enough into their being. The modern initiate, therefore, knows that the Pauline phrase, quote, not I, but Christ in me, close quote, is profoundly true. I will find the Christ within me if I descend deep enough into my humanity. But the initiate does not have to try to initiate everyone else, too, to make them Christians. Instead, Equipped with this knowledge of Christ, he discovers how simple piety can also find new ways forward. This simple, primitive piety can find the Christ. Nowadays, however, such piety has to find somewhat different ways from the old ones. It is no longer enough to sit at the feet of a guru. The path must be an inward one, since human beings ought no longer to send up their feelings for the divine into a supersensible world, but should instead delve into themselves to find within them the Christ, who has been living on the earth since the mystery of Golgotha. Anthroposophic spiritual science can communicate a real truth to those of simple piety, that it is no illusion to find the Christ if you delve deeply enough into yourself for he is there in your depths. He is there because he descended into these depths through the death at Golgotha. The anthroposophic spiritual science knows he is, excuse me, the anthroposophic spiritual scientist knows he is conveying a truth in speaking in this way to those of simple piety, that he is not merely drawing on a person's feelings but that he can show him a goal which a person of simple piety can attain. Someone who possesses a simple, pious outlook can also pursue a modern path. In former times, 
through reverence for the guru, pupils developed transparent thoughts, the divine resonance of the mantra, the gesture of worship. Whereas someone who wishes to find his way to Christ in the modern era needs to find, first and foremost, an inwardness of soul. He needs to learn to look inward, to have an inner content in his feelings, his inner experience, when he turns his gaze away from the external world. And there he must find the power that leads him through the gateway of death, becoming acquainted with it here on earth in a devotion to Christ and the mystery of Golgotha. The ancient guru told his pupils, and through them all of humanity, that when they passed through the gate of death, they would find the sublime sun-being who perfects the imperfections of earth. The modern initiate or teacher says by contrast, quote, If you gain a relationship here on earth to the Christ who descended to us and to the mystery of Golgotha, finding your relationship to him with all powers of inner reverence, inner adoration, then within you will stream a power that does not die when you do. You will bear this with you through the gate of death, and it will accomplish for you what you cannot accomplish here on earth as long as you possess a physical body. What the sublime sun-being accomplished for human beings in ancient times, the power of Christ will accomplish by remaining in your being when you are free of the body after death. Let me read that last sentence of the quote again. What the sublime sun-being accomplished for human beings in ancient times, the power of Christ will accomplish by remaining in your being when you are free of the body after death. Close quote. The Christ power will act in what remains imperfect in us, making it possible for people on earth to find one another in social existence in this acknowledgement of Christ. You see, what penetrates us with an inner power that streams from Christ, as anthroposophic spiritual science can reveal, is a power that can work into human actions, human will, an impulse for such actions which stream, therefore, into our social coexistence. The powers of Christ can indeed stream into the life of our social community. Today, people speak a great deal about social reforms, social progress. But who will be the great reformer of social life, the great innovator who will one day enable human actions in society to be undertaken in the name of Christ Jesus, so that the world can become Christ-permeated? Who will be the great reformer, the social reformer too, who will sow peace wherever there has been social conflict? Only the Christ can do so. When people become able to develop social community together, which at certain moments in life becomes an act of worship, then they can look up to the Christ and instead of saying, capital I, say that if only two or three or many are united in Christ, then Christ is among them. Thus, Social initiative will become an act of worship and a continuation of ancient rites of worship. Christ must himself become the great social reformer of our times by working within us in a living way. 
This is the Christianization of social existence. But now I'd like to ask this. Is what people long for possible? Is it possible for those of simple piety to find the power of Christ in their souls? so that in acting amongst others in social community they act in the name of Christ and their actions become worthy of this? Can a person of simple piety acquire the certainty that his actions are done in Christ's name? The modern initiate can tell such people that their experience is based on truth that what they find in reflecting on themselves and on what lives in them as Christ did arise from the death at Golgotha and does truly flow from Christ. And what you accomplish in social community in the awareness of doing it as Christ impulse is indeed done in Christ's name. For Christ lives amongst us when we find him. And we find him through ourselves, through inwardness in social coexistence. We find true devotional love, which crosses the gulf between one human heart and another, bringing a supersensible element into our feelings, like the light which shines inwardly, a supersensible element into our perceptions and insights. It is therefore possible for people of simple piety to learn that their path of simple devoutness is not hindered or disrupted by anthroposophic spiritual science, not at all. Their perpetuation of a purely outward science would gradually dim and darken this natural piety. But anthroposophic spiritual science, in conveying knowledge of the supersensible realm, and thus a true knowledge of the Christ being as a supersensible being, can give to those of true piety the very thing they long for, a certainty about what lives in their souls, a certainty about what lives in their hands and loving actions done in the name of Christ, in harmony with the Christ impulse. The very thing a devout person longs for will be able to enter the world as certain knowledge through what anthroposophic spiritual science seeks to be. It does not obstruct the paths of the truly devout, does not lead people away from the Christ. It does not enter the world of spirit in denial of modern science, but carries this science forward with it and with respect for it. Anthroposophic spiritual science knows that humanity cannot go forward into its future without the Christ. It does so with the Christ, with the truly perceived and felt Christ, with actions in the world that summon his being to work here in the world. The end of Lecture 11